Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15 as we continue our study, as James said. We're picking up in verse 1. We're going to read on through to verse 21. And uh, I titled this message, Living Ambitiously, and I'll try to explain why. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together? Paul begins by saying, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so with, that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy." As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing hymns to your name. Again it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I have written to you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, with a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glorify, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit." So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand." Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we look to your word today that you would help us, your Holy Spirit would open our understanding, give us intellectual capacity beyond that which is native or natural to us. Help us instead, Lord, to even grasp the deep things of God because, God, we are a people who want to know you more intimately. And we pray, God, that you'd so bless the time that we have today that those of our amongst us who are at the lake instead of here will regret that they missed this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. <laughs> you may be seated. That's all right to pray, isn't it? I hope. <laughs> Not judging, just being irritated. Anyway, Paul begins, uses a word in this passage that often troubles many Christian readers. In fact, he makes reference to one of his life's ambitions. In verse 20, as we read, he says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Now, some view ambition as being a negative and something that's spiritually unhealthy, even maybe a character fault particularly because the New Testament writers over and over again made reference to a certain kind of ambition which they defined or we translate as selfish ambition. Philippians 2.3, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. 
This has led some people to conclude that it's sinful to have a goal or to have a plan or a strategy um, or to strongly desire anything at all. In fact, there's kind of a dichotomy that they create. I think it's a false dichotomy, but they create this idea that if we're led of the Spirit, it means that the Spirit does all of the thinking for us and we just become kind of spiritual automatons that move along. We had phrases when I was a young Christian that kind of expressed this, and it was the idea of glide and abide. You know, it's just basically going with the flow of the Spirit. We called it oftentimes sloppy agape. Uh, you know, it was this idea that you really don't have to give any kind of forethought. Now, you have to understand the context was a bunch of brain-dead hippies who had been smoking marijuana for a long time before they got saved. So the idea of actually thinking deeply was really kind of like cl climbing Everest for us at that point. It was just a challenge. But as we progressed and we matured and we healed and we got healthy and clear-minded, one of the things we began to realize is that there was, in fact, a point in having a plan. As someone said, if you don't know where you're going, you end up somewhere else. And I know for myself, oftentimes ending up somewhere else, and it's really worse when somewhere else is actually something you intentionally did, you begin to realize it probably wouldn't have been a bad idea to have given a little forethought to what we're doing. In fact, that's hardly the thing that's being warned against when he says don't do anything through selfish ambition because the very word that Paul uses is the idea of having a goal, a target. We could translate it, Paul says, I have made it my primary goal, or the primary aim or target of my life is to preach Christ. And in particular, to define that even further, to preach it to those who have never heard it before. He wasn't putting that out as something was a mandate for all believers, but he simply said, this is the mandate under which I have been called, and explains why I, being a Jew, raised in the greatest traditions of Judaism, have committed my life to living and ministering amongst the Gentiles. He was a true missionary in the truest sense moving from one cultural identity to another in order to reach people. But we find that this is really a, a biblical context, content, concept, excuse me, because Solomon wrote extensively about the importance of having a plan. In fact, he said in Proverbs 12:5, "The plans of the righteous are just." So there's no problem with having a plan. He just says that when you're righteous, your plans look different than when you're unrighteous. That's kind of a duh, isn't it? Or in Proverbs 20:18, he says, make plans by seeking advice. He goes on to say, obtain guidance. Or again in chapter 21, he says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. So here's an interesting concept. He says a lot of times people have a poverty of results, whether you're talking about ministry or economics or politics or anything, they have a po poverty of results because they rush into it hastily without giving it any real thought. And I might add, because they've never really come up with a plan. But Solomon also warns with an important caveat. He says in chapter 16, in verses 3 and again in verse 9, he says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. In his heart, he adds, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. In Proverbs 19, 21, he adds, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Or as we often say, man proposes, but God disposes. And this makes complete sense, really, when you think about it. Because as Paul reminded us in the beginning of the book of Romans, God himself is a great planner. He said in verse 2 of chapter 1, the gospel that he, speaking of God, promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scripture. So we read the Holy Scriptures, we read the Old Testament prophets, and what do we read? We read about God's plan of redemption. He says, this is where I'm going, and this is what I'm doing, and this is what the consequence is going to be. In fact, he has an entire life's plan laid out for you when you were still a twinkle in your father's eye. In fact, he says in, in chapter 8, verse 29, we studied, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed 
to the likeness of his son. Predestined is a pretty firm planning process. And again, Paul even writing to the Ephesians said, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So again, the idea that it's unbiblical or unspiritual to have a plan behind what you're going to do is not something you can support scripturally. The Word of God says this over and over again, that God plans and He expects us to have a plan as well. But essentially, Scripture tells us two things, I believe. That one, you and I are supposed to have a plan. Your life is supposed to have a plan. And and what that means is that you've stepped back and you've looked at who you are and who God has made you to be, how He has gifted and empowered you, and you say, God, I want to know how I can use what you made me for your purpose. And what you will discover is God will begin to lay out steps for you to follow in your life. Now that's the first thing. The second thing is you better make sure that the plan that you're forming is actually God's plan. So that when somebody once said, are you a visionary leader? I asked the question, well, what does that mean? Well, they said, well, do you have a vision for your ministry? I said, well, what I tell you I do is I pray to God and I ask God to show me his vision and I try to be obedient to it. And essentially, it's not so much that I am creating some new way of doing what God wants to do, but it's recognizing that God created every one of us individually for a purpose and I want to organize my life around that purpose as opposed to organizing my life around my purpose. Because that's where we cross over into this thing called selfish ambition. It's one of the reasons we find Paul explaining so frequently what his plans are. In fact, further on, we'll get to it next week in verse 24, he talks about, I plan to do so when I go to Spain, and I hope to visit you while passing through. Well, we have no idea if Paul's plan to go to Spain ever came to pass. And I'm not saying that we as believers can't make plans and then find out that those plans don't match up with God. The problem isn't discovering that my plan wasn't God's plan. My problem begins when I am inflexible and won't give up my plan because I want it to be God's plan. That's where we get in trouble because we are people who walk by faith. We look into a glass dimly and darkly and we often make our best judgments in faith But are we flexible enough to allow God to adjust the plan as he leads us down his path? Because over and over again, I've discovered that God's will for my life is not always absolutely clear, but I do believe that God has a perfect will for my life. And that becomes a point of security. In fact, one of the things that Paul talks about, we'll see next week, is raising an offering for the church in Jerusalem, a very carefully planned out procedure and process that he was taking them through. And he says in in 2 Corinthians 9, talking about this same event, he says, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements. In other words, I put out a plan, I've guided people into the fulfillment of it, and we are making arrangements to ensure that what we're doing is successful. And I say that because, again, there's this thought that if the Spirit is leading, there is no necessary planning. I love what D.L. Moody once said. He said, when I go into an a, a evangelistic crusade, and for him these would last many weeks in a city, he says, the first thing I do is I plan as if there is no God, and then I pray as if there's no plan. In other words, he said there's that dual responsibility that we have to strive to be structured and organized and make sure that we're doing things properly, but at the same time, we know that our plans and our structure and our energies and our resources are not the secret to success. They are simply many times clearing the way in order to allow us to focus on what God wants us to do. You see, I say this because when I study the Apostle Paul, and I have studied his life carefully for years, as I assume you you understand, I see that he was a clearly an ambitious man. 
He was an ambitious man with a very ambitious plan. In fact, I think you could even describe him in our terminology as being driven. And I don't make that up. I just read what he says. When he says to the Philippians in Philippians 3.13, he says, one thing I do. What he means, in other words, I have this singular focus, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me, heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And then he adds, all of us who are mature should take such a view. In other words, he says, I am focused like a laser beam, not worrying about what was behind, but rather striving continuously to reach the goal for which God has created me. The idea is that when we set plans, we have a clearly defined God-ordained goal in mind. So that Paul says, here's my life's goal, to preach the gospel, but not just to preach the gospel to anybody, but to preach the gospel in places where no one else has yet gone to preach the gospel. Paul understood, in our terminology, you would call him a pioneer. He was a pioneer. He understood that this was how God had made him and structured him. And he says, I have determined that as I understood who I was and what I was called to do, that I was going to commit all of my energies to the point, he says, of straining with all of my energy. In fact, to the Corinthians, he says, I have worked harder. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God, but yet I have worked harder than everyone else because I know in the end it's all by grace. So that to him, grace wasn't an excuse to do less or to do nothing. Grace was an excuse to do more because he knew that the grace of God was so heavy upon him that whatever he did, it would be blessed and it would be prospered. So it's like a farmer saying, well, I don't want to plant too much seed because then I would have too great a crop because the soil is too rich. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. No, Paul says... If I'm going to sow, I'm going to sow as much as I can, as broadly as I can, because I know that God has guaranteed that 100% of the seed of his word will grow roots, it will sprout, it will grow up and produce fruit, and therefore I am busy all the time going everywhere I can to plant as much seed as I possibly can. That is an ambitious, I might even say, a driven man. The problem is, is that when we look at the scriptures, it talks about two kinds of ambition. There is a godly ambition, and, and it stands out because when we look at Paul's words here, three times in this chapter, he speaks about his goal of glorifying God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I do what I do that God might be glorified. That was his ultimate ambition, that God would be glorified and honored through his life. The idea that every day I live my life, that it puts a smile, if you will, on God's face. That he looks at me day by day and says, well done, good and faithful servant. That that's the idea, that it's to bring glory to him. That he says in verse 20, as we read earlier, he says, I have always been, it has always been my ambition. That, he says, which I strive earnestly after that I make the target of my life. But there's another kind of ambition that I contrast godly ambition with. I call it ungodly ambition. And when I use the prefix un, I use it in the sense of the old 7-Up commercial. It called itself the un-cola. It says it's not a cola. It never has been. It never will be. The problem with ungodliness isn't simply that it can behave in some very dark ways. But sometimes ungodliness can appear to be a very good thing. It just doesn't have God in it. So that if someone cuts their lawn, I I think that's a good thing that you're cutting that lawn, but I don't look at it as an issue of godliness unless you're my neighbor. In that case... Please cut your lawn. But the whole point is that we sometimes look at things and and put them into these strong, harsh categories, but ungodliness simply means we choose to leave God out of it. 
So that many times when we look at how the church functions in a society, it can be proclaiming the name of Christ in the most ungodly way. Recently I went to a, a seminar and, uh, and um, it was interesting because it was, it was all about it was built about understanding the millennial generation, and that's always been a fascination for me. I've always loved demographics and statistics and comparisons and all those sorts of things. Kind of a weakness of mine, if you will. But here was a, a nine-hour seminar, nonstop, but all this stuff, and it was data. They called it big data. It was a big data dump. I mean, it was data, 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 data. And I'm sitting there listening to all this stuff, and as I get in my car to leave, being kind of overwhelmed by the experience, I started talking to the Lord and saying, God, why am I struggling on the inside right now? And suddenly it occurred to me that in all these things about data and research and measurements and statistics and all these kinds of things, and, and using that as a way of reaching the millennial generation, there was not one prayer offered. There was not one reference to the Holy Spirit. There was no reference to the teaching of the Word of God. It was as if I was sitting in a business seminar figuring out how to market the gospel to a generational client. And that's what's happening in the church. It's ungodly. Not because... You know, it's not like the children of God who sent girls out to solicit in order to win converts. No, they're not doing anything that kind of ungodly. It's just the fact that God never came up in the conversation. It never entered anybody's mind that we need to really seek God, that they can come to know God and become seekers of God because we fail to recognize it's not just convincing somebody that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's converting someone. And there's a big difference between convinced and converted. Churches are filled with people who are convinced that the Bible is true and Jesus is God. They just have never converted their lifestyle into that. So that when I go into a foreign country oftentimes, because most of the world seems to run on 220, I have to convert 220 into 110 or it'll blow my devices up. And the same thing is true many times as we're trying to take the ways of the world and run them through our spiritual devices and programs and then we wonder why do they blow up so spectacularly? Why is it we fill the church with people most who have never really truly surrendered their life to the Lord Jesus, Jesus, Lordship of Jesus Christ? It's because they've been convinced but they're not converted. Those of us who have been converted, we understand that conversion, that transition from one to another. We understand that thing that grips our life and changes the very passion of our existence. That when we awake in the morning, there is this present sense that we are a called people, a chosen people. We're a people of design. We are a people of destiny. We're not just people who are doing a job. I was talking to my son Brian, who works in the Nashville scene, and in fact, he's going to be here doing worship the next two Sundays. But you know, he—I was explaining. I said, you know, I find that in the church, more and more young people I see coming into ministry are viewing the ministry as a career and not a calling. It's a career. They're very concerned about benefits and pay and and all these kind of things that go with having a career. And, and they, look, they move from church to church based upon the career options that will move them up that ladder of importance and significance. And uh, the whole idea that you're called to a place to do a thing. I mean, why have I stayed in Spokane for 33 years? Because we were called here. Even in times when I wanted to do something else, God says, no, you're called to do this. Usually we want to, when things get hard, we want to go someplace else, don't we? Or am I the only one like that? <laughs> and God says, you know, I've often said slaves can't quit, although I've never been even that great a slave. I've often tried to quit. But nonetheless, you find out that it's true not because you understand it, it's because it's true because it's true. You can't quit. You want to quit. He said, no, you can't. You can't make me. Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> you don't want to have that argument, let me tell you. But this is what happens where we begin to say, 
How do I build myself, my life, my future? How do I secure my best life now? You could even write a book titled that. And suddenly we seek to sanctify selfish ambition. And we think that selfish ambition only looks a certain way. It has to be very dark and tawdry and evil and wicked and, and sensually driven and all the rest. When in fact, it can just be, as Oswald Chambers said, that often the best is the victim of the good. It can be a thing that is a good thing so that one great mission organization that works around the world goes into Muslim countries and if you volunteer to work with them, one of the things they'll tell you, in a Muslim country, we're forbidden to preach the gospel. So whatever you do, don't preach the gospel. Feed them and do all this stuff, but don't preach the gospel. And you sit back and go, well, feeding and caring for the sick, it's a good thing. But what Jesus said, does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? Now, I'm trying not to be critical of that. I just get confused by it because I don't understand why would I be content just to do that? But we find the scriptures often warned about this issue of, of, of selfish ambition. In fact, this prefix, selfish, comes from things like Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, 24, where he says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition. Or in James 3, 16, where he warns, he says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder and evil practice. In fact, Paul even goes on in Galatians 5 when he's talking about what he calls the acts of the sinful nature. He lists these things that we would think would be part of the actions of the sinful nature, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, selfish ambition. Now, here again, terms kind of can confuse us because sometimes we say, well, it's wrong to be competitive. I don't think there's anything in the world wrong with competition. Competition isn't the problem. It's conquest. That's the problem. When I was a kid, we literally were taught, it's not how you, not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. The coaches said that, we believed them, and we tried our best, we loved the competitive uh, aspect of the game, but if we lost, we went away saying, you know what, we tried our best, and we shook hands, and we were friendly and polite, and we were taught to be gentlemen. And now today, competition has deteriorated because of the money factor to a large degree or the glory factor into this almost rabid pursuit of conquest so that when one player stands over another player and taunts and threatens them, and we go, yeah, that's that winning way. It's conquest, the idea that I'm going to conquer you because it's in conquest that we conquer and we control and we dominate the other. That's what's wrong. And unfortunately, sometimes because we don't make that distinction, we criticize people for having competitive passions because people like to win at a game or they like to win in business. It's one thing to be successful, but if your desire of being successful is that you're going to crush the other person in the process, then that's selfish ambition. As Art and Gingrich in their lexicon uh, defined it simply, he, they point out that this was a word that was first used by Aristotle as far as the earliest record. We're talking about, you know, 4th, 5th century B.C. Aristotle uses this term that's translated selfish ambition. And he said, he used it in this context, the self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Aren't you glad we don't live in that kind of world? <laughs> but the New Testament writers a few hundred years later used it in the sense of a selfish desire to put oneself forward. Self-promotion. The idea that I'm going to promote myself. And Paul draws this distinction. He says, my goal is to promote Christ. 
He even says in the passage read, I don't even want to talk about anything else other than my desire to bring the gospel to people. I want to promote Christ. That's what I'm all about. I don't need my name on anything. He didn't have the Apostle Paul Evangelistic Association. It was about Jesus. And I think Paul must have probably suspected that with his death, he would disappear into the anonymity of history and no one would ever remember his name. And it's that very self-effacing approach to life and the desire to glorify Christ above everything that has emblazoned his life through the history of the church, if not the history of the world. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come, wasn't born in a palace. He was born in poverty. He, he didn't come in power, but rather he came in powerlessness. He didn't conquer. He surrendered himself to those who wanted to kill him. And he died, not an honorable death, but what was considered the most shameful death, the most effacing death that you could go through. And what did he do? He stands as the pinnacle of human history. That all history either begins or ends with Jesus Christ. And so he stands eternally in our minds. Percy Bysshe Shelley, the 19th, 18th century poet, wrote a, one of my favorite poems uh, called Ozymandias. And it was really inspired by a trip to Egypt. Because if you go to Egypt, especially to, you go down to Luxor where all the palaces are on one side of the, uh, the Nile River, but across the Nile River on the other side, is the Valley of the Kings, which was basically the graveyard for the king, the pharaohs later on. We, you know, long after they stopped burying people in pyramids because of the cost and the fact that they were penetrable, uh, they started burying them in these underground caverns. That's where most of the Egyptian kings were buried. And at the entrance, there was a road that led into the Valley of the Kings. And, on, and even today, on either side of the road at the entrance, there are these two massive statues cut out of 50-foot-high 50 blocks of stone of Emperor Ramses II, who was probably the most powerful and wealthiest of all the pharaohs of Egypt. And seeing that, when it's kind of striking when you see it because you, you come to this and then suddenly there is nothing else except desert sand in every direction. And Shelley wrote this poem. He said, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survived, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level stand, sands stretch far away. You see, you can build a tower in New York City and put your name on it, but one day it will be forgotten and it will crumble. That's the nature. You can become the most powerful person in the world, but one day you will perish and you'll be forgotten. So that when you look at the great empires of the world, Majestic structures, great accomplishments. Today they lie in rubble all around and you wonder, is this the glory of man? Destined to collapse and decay and fall away. That's why Paul offers a different path. 
In fact, there were three things that he encouraged the Roman believers to do that I think are important to us. Things he said that would build up as opposed to tear down. The first thing he says is that in order to build people up, you need to bear with those, the failings of the weak. Literally, it reads, bear with or put up with the weakness of the weak if you are strong. I like the way Peterson put it. He said, lend a hand to those who falter. Because the point is that strength is for service, not for status. Strength is for service. He said, so if you're strong, then you need to serve. You need to serve by being forbearing, forbearing of those who are weak, weak in the faith, who are weak in their theology, who maybe more importantly are weak in their own capacity, whether it's mentally, emotionally, socially, or functionally. You need to bear with them. You need to, secondly, he said, not please yourself. Verse 1, he said, not pleasing ourselves, each of us should please his neighbor. In other words, we were willing to accommodate other people, their opinions, their desires, their interests. We don't simply demand that everybody accommodate themselves to ours. And he said, we do it for their good. We do it not just to make them happy. We don't do it just to make them pleased. We don't please them so that they will be pleased. We please them or do what's pleasing or most important for them so that they will experience the best that they can experience, which sometimes means that you confront something that's wrong, or it means that you hold somebody accountable for something they are entangled in. And it also means that you forgive and you assure them of God's forgiveness. You see, what Paul is doing, he's taking away from them the idea of saying, it's not my problem. Who was it? I can't remember. There's somebody else who said, am I my brother's keeper? Didn't go well for him? Part of the plan of my life, the organization of my life, is the recognition that I can't ignore what God puts in my face. I can look at a thing and say, God, is that for me? And if God says no, then you say, okay, then I'll move on. But when God brings you to something and you say, God, is this for me? And he says, yes, it is. Don't ignore it. Don't move on. Don't put it off till a more convenient time. But you simply respond and say, okay, Lord, guide me. Guide me. Just give me the courage to move forward. But secondly, he says that we need to teach the scriptures. It's interesting how he puts this. In verse 4 through 6, he says, through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give your spirit a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and with one mind you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three things. Through the scriptures we get endurance. Through the scriptures, we get encouragement. How does that work? Well, think about what happens when you really spend time in the Word. At least this is my experience. First thing I recognize is God is in control. God is in control. Governments aren't in control. <laughs> I just, my wife and I were talking about this last night, and we were talking about how that from where we sit, the future of this nation looks really, really scary. And... Uh, we were having that conversation, and I said, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, this year, all these political prognosticators, there's people who get paid really a lot of money to tell other people what's going to happen, especially other political groups and organizations and parties and so forth, and all of them predicted that when Donald Trump in October said he was going to run for president, all of them, without exception, all of them said he has no chance. He is, has a, about much chance as an ice cube going through H-E double hockey sticks. It's just not going to happen. And I was hearing the interview of one of these guys who was saying, well, it's really kind of an anomaly because when we look at the way everything in the past has worked, it's always worked this way, and he doesn't fit the mold, and so we're trying to figure that out. And I said to my wife, that's the problem. When we look at the way things are in the past and we try to forecast in the future, we forget that it's called the future for a reason. 
that God holds the future. God determines what's going to happen. Men don't determine as much as the news channels may tell us that men control the events. God controls the events. Every one of us sitting here, I'm sure, can remember a moment when your life should have been ended, and yet by some miraculous intervention, you survived. I don't think there's a one of us who doesn't have a story like that. Some of us can have several of those, and we sit back and say, there but for the grace of God, not the help of man, but for the grace of God, God controls it. And I realize that when I study the Word of God, what is God telling me? I created it, and I'm going to turn the lights off at the end. And everything in between I control. That history isn't just bumbling along serendipitously. It is designed by me to reach this nexus point that will ultimately fulfill my will and my plan, which is to see men come to Jesus Christ and live and reign with me for all eternity. And when I look at that and I see that in scriptures, I step back and go, you know what? The future may look kind of dicey, but we win in the end. It's like a Mariner game. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that sense of peace. It brings comfort to my heart. It brings that I know that God is in control, that God has a plan, and most importantly, His plan is good and it's good for me. And I can rest in that. So Paul says, you need to teach the scripture, but beyond that he says, because out of that will come a unity. Not just this generalized kumbaya unity that people talk about today, but a specific kind of unity. Unity around the truth of God. This is going to be really the difficult journey for the church, I believe, in the next few decades. Because we find that everybody, increasingly we're finding in the church, people are wanting to get along so they go along. Well, we won't talk about this topic. We won't mention that group. We won't describe that particular sin because we don't want to offend everybody. So we're just going to kind of navigate this thing and fly through the radar. It reminds me of one uh, B-24 pilot uh, during World War II who said when they came in there, he said there was so much flack he said, did you take evasive action? He said, there was no place to go. There was no place to go. What do you mean evasive action? We were surrounded by explosions. There was no place to go. And you see, when we find the church trying to navigate its way carefully through all the warps and woofs of our cultural predilections, we don't look very good. And we don't prove ourselves very effective. You see... We're supposed to speak the truth in love, but we're supposed to speak the truth. And that's where he says you have a unity that's based not upon getting along, but it's based upon the fact that you all are embracing the same truth. For those of you who don't understand, there's a reason why we go through the Bible the way we go through it. And you say, well, some people get offended by the things that you say. I'm sorry. <laughs> Take it up with the author. <laughs> I didn't write this thing. Because many people, until they come to peace with this book, are never going to come peace with peace with God. But lastly... He says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. This word, this Greek word, proslamano, it's an interesting word because it's, it means literally to take somebody as your companion, as somebody who walks alongside of you, that you receive them into your life with kindness. You, I love what lexicon said, you grant them access to your heart. We find that many times we get wounded by people and to protect ourselves, we close our hearts off to people. We keep them at a distance. We keep them at a distance. And he says, you know, when we accept one another, we are willing to be vulnerable again to other people, knowing that we may well be injured or wounded by them, but we, we continue to put ourselves out there. 
It's this willingness to accept one another for who we are. You know, it's, it's, it's a hard thing because this is something that people yearn for. We all know that we're damaged goods. Mark Twain said we're all like the moon. We have a dark side that we hope nobody else sees. And what happens is oftentimes we're saying, well, I like the bright side of your life. Now I'm seeing a dark side. Uh, I don't know if I want to be around you anymore. Almost as if you don't have a dark side. Really? I'm in your brain. I see what's going on there. You know? that, that's the whole point is that there is this acceptance, not a rationalization, not a justification, not an excusing. It maybe involves a confrontation, maybe involves accountability, but it doesn't change the fact that I accept you into my life. Because we live in an age where what we want to do is we just want to reject anything that makes us uncomfortable or is messy. And we want to find our own spiritual ghetto where we can live isolated. What Paul says, if we do these things, there's a blessing that comes. In fact, in verse 5 he said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, when I make my, the ambition of my life to bring glory to Him, and I find that the way I begin to glorify Him is by building other people up, which means I forbear things in other people. It, it means that I teach them the truth of God. It, it means that I accept them without requiring them to meet some kind of artificial standard that I've created or that I've sanctified out of my own set of preferences, that he says what happens is you will find that peace and joy will come into your life and you will overflow with God's power. And you say, why is that? Because I worked my way there? No, because God bestows that on you with a blessing because he knows you're safe for the lost sheep. You ever wonder why a lost sheep runs away when you try to rescue it? It's because they're convinced that they, you want to kill and devour. That's why. <laughs> they run for their life. And sometimes we can be almost predatorial in the way that we relate to each other. We don't bear with stuff that we don't like or don't feel comfortable with. We don't, we don't teach the Word of God with love. We, we don't accept people for who they are. We oftentimes want them to have a different personality or a different presentation or whatever the thing is. And those they instinctively know that if they come into your arena, the chance that they're going to get butchered in the name of God is pretty good. But if they know this is the place where I'm safe, they'll come. They'll come. Because we go there to be healed. If I walk into a hospital and it looks a lot like a butcher shop, I'm not going any further. <laughs> but if I walk into a hospital and I see people caring for me, I'm going to surrender myself to their care because I know that they're committed to healing. And if the doctor's name is Hannibal Lecter, I'm really moving on. So <laughs> let's pray. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir us in a way that would motivate us to seek your greater purpose and plan for our lives. We admit, Lord, sometimes we get confused between which is which. Sometimes we think what we've figured out is what you want, and then we find it doesn't prosper, Lord, and we have to step back and say, Lord, I thought that's what you wanted, but your will be done. I'm convinced in the end of the story, Lord, that everything will make sense, but in life we will have many things that don't add up, don't make sense, and we can't figure them out. 
But God, one thing we do know for sure is that you cause all things to work together for the good of those you have saved. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be people who would be willing to trust you, to follow you, to, 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 to listen to your voice and not always demand that it be profitable or it be comfortable and pleasurable, but, God, that we would be willing to say, Lord, this is a hard road, but it is the one you've chosen for me. I pray, Lord, that our yearning would be like Paul's, that he desired to be redemptive in his life. I pray that you would put that same desire in us, that we would make it our ambition that Christ be glorified through us, knowing that we have no ability to do that, but your Holy Spirit has all power and all ability to work through the most incompetent. In fact, that's what the grace of God is. It's your greatness flowing through our incompetence for your glory. Help us to be people who embrace your grace, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue on, I just encourage you to be reflective about the things that God has spoken to your life today. I invite you to come and partake of the elements communion. If you're a believer, this is an ordinance specially reserved for you. It's, if you're not a believer, uh, this is just, just uh, grape juice and crackers. But for those of us who understand its significance, this becomes for us really the body and the blood of Jesus Christ not by some transmutation, but simply because Jesus said as often as we eat this bread, we remember him. We remember that he gave his body for us. And as often as we drink that cup, we, we remember that his life was poured out for us. And we celebrate that fact. We, it's not a point of mourning or regret. It's a point of celebration and thanksgiving because we would be so horribly lost on every level if he hadn't come and done that. So that if you're a believer, I invite you to come, but I always want to put it in this context, that when we do it, we're making a statement about the commitment of our life, that we have committed ourselves to live what the cup and the bread represents. It's not just a ritual because then it becomes a, an empty ritual. It becomes something that we just do without any meaning or understanding. We do it because it's a statement that we're making, a statement to God, not even to anybody else. But God, I'm saying to you that I recognize your body was given for me so that I might give you my body. Romans 12, remember that? And I take this cup realizing that you poured out the entirety of your life and you have called me so that I will give you not portions of my life, but the entirety of my life. Because see, God, I'm not just convinced of its truth. I've been converted. I've been transformed. So I encourage you to come and partake in Jesus' name.